0: Today's episode mirrors a soap opera script. A charismatic bachelor who professes to have Hollywood connections, lures multiple women from dating websites, and promises them fame, money, and love, and delivers on none. Romance scams occur when a scammer uses the illusion of a romantic relationship to steal from the victims. Romance scams are some of the most heartbreaking scams out there because often the victims crave the love and attention more so than the money they have lost. Welcome to Real Life Regulators, a podcast aimed at educating investors using real cases. This podcast is brought to you by the North American Securities Administrators Association, also known as NASA. I'm Nick Vondreau, the Marketing Specialist for the Alabama Securities Commission, and I'll be serving as one of your hosts. And today, my co-host is Lynn Peters, Director of Communications of the Financial Education Outreach Division with the Washington State Department of Financial Institutions.
1: And joining us today is Mr. Howard Dargan. Mr. Dargan is the Bureau Chief of Investigations with the Florida Office of Financial Regulation.
0: We are here to talk about what happened, what went wrong, and what you can do in the future to best protect yourself from securities fraud. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us today.
1: Before we get to the case, let's start off and tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Mr. Dargan?
2: Okay, certainly. Um, I've been basically in uh, public service for the last uh, 20 years. I started with the SEC. Um, I worked there as an enforcement attorney, then as a branch chief. Uh, From there I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office, worked as a a USA for eight years there. I was in private practice for 14 years doing white collar crime. Um, Then I circled back and came back to public service um, with the Attorney General's Office for another six years before joining the Office of Financial Regulation. So I have about 35 years of investigating, prosecuting, or defending fraud cases.
0: The subject of this case is Mr. Scott Campbell. Can you briefly describe this
2: case? When I think about this case, I I may be dating myself, but I think about uh, that movie uh, with Danny DeVito, Other People's Money. Um, that's really what this case was. It's really about Somebody spending other people's money. And in this particular case, the other people were all women. Uh, He basically targeted certain women. Uh, He met them. He romanced them. uh, He pitched them and then he scammed them.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about Mr. Campbell's background?
2: Uh, Well, we know he was born in the early 60s or mid 60s. Uh, He uh, lived in uh, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, We do know that he spent some time in the military, a short period of time. Uh, he came to Florida at least by uh, early 2000s. He formed one of his companies in 2003, uh, and he lived in the Kissimmee area.
1: Did he have a job, or how did he earn his income?
2: <clears throat> well, when he when he got to, to Florida in uh, 2000, um, he apparently, by at least 2003, started this company called BDO Records and um, essentially started... Soliciting women to um, invest in his company, uh, basically going to be the next um, American Idol, um, America's Got Talent, one of those things. He and he pitched himself as being um, basically a, a talent scout agency, and so that was his his job, if you if you will, um, basically soliciting women to uh, invest in his company and using their funds uh, however he saw fit
0: and this was pretty much happening in Kissimmee, Florida. And it's not very far from Orlando. What kind of town is Kissimmee, would you say?
2: It's uh, it's changed over time. Uh Kissimmee at one point was very very rural area, but it's uh it's a growing area. It is very close to Orlando. Uh, it it has a lot of of people who have moved there for being close to Orlando, uh, jobs, entertainment, etc.
0: Did he have roots in the area? Like, was he a hometown guy from Kissimmee or?
2: The evidence indicates he was not. The evidence indicates he was from the uh, New Jersey area. And um, when he came to Florida, he, he met a woman who he began living with in the Kissimmee area. So
1: when this all came about, how did Florida's Office of Financial Regulation find out about this case?
2: We found out about the case the way we find out about a lot of cases: Uh, a consumer called or filed a complaint with our office. Uh, This was in November of 2011. Uh, This particular consumer uh, had met Mr. Campbell on a on a dating site. Uh, He had pitched her, explained his dream, if you will, explained uh, that he had a a recording company that he had this uh, company called Give Me a Chance Talent Search. Uh, He told her that he was going to have a a, basically a nationwide talent search going on in May of that year. I believe he met her in April. And so the next month he told her he was going to have this talent search and he needed some funds for that. And that if she invested, uh, she'd make a tremendous amount of money. And so she had invested. And six or seven months later, after this tour was supposedly over, she asked for the money back and and there was no money uh, to be had. So she complained to our office.
1: So it sounds a little bit like, his enterprises were built a little bit like American Idol?
2: I think um, that's what the way he described it to people. Um, American Idol or America's Got Talent. Uh, He was supposedly always building this recording studio. Uh, He told people he had a nationwide talent search going on. He he solicited money for an RV so he could do this nationwide search. Um, He claimed he was developing these new artists. He would train them, manage them, um, and basically make CDs and help them launch their career. So that's that's really the pitch, if you will.
0: Did he have a previous music background? Was he talented himself in music, or how did he get into this?
2: I, I think the evidence, the consistent evidence that came out was that he did honestly love music. Um, and he may may have played an instrument or something of that sort. Uh, The website described him as having, uh, being a 25-year veteran, but certainly there was no evidence that was presented at trial that that would substantiate that. Uh, He certainly talked a good game. He certainly knew about the music industry, but there really wasn't any evidence that he had ever been in the music industry as he'd represented it.
0: And it appeared like... In the flashy website that was available, he had his picture actually standing with very, very well known celebrities at the time. Um, Did he actually have connections with these celebrities or did he just meet these like at a meet and greet autograph session?
2: Well, And tell you uh, the evidence that was presented and, and from the investigation, it produced no evidence that he actually had these connections that he was representing that he had. Um, in fact, at the trial, his defense attorney even argued that uh, these investors should have known that, this, that these were not people that he actually met with, that these are famous people. These are not people that he had under contract. This is just what he was hoping to get to. Um, there was also evidence that he took a group of investors with other investors' money out to Vegas at uh, $2,400 a pop uh, to uh, a v- with VIP tickets to see a... Um, Celine Dion concert and have a backstage meet and greet. And again, obviously, if you're backstage, you certainly have an opportunity to have your photo taken with that. Um, the judge commented that he, based on what he saw from the evidence, the website pictures looked like they were exactly as you described them uh, from a fan event that he had attended that had been paid for with other people's money.
1: So was he, do you think he was just wanting to be famous? I mean, did he ever get any actual media exposure?
2: I I don't know what his personal motivation was, whether he was trying to be famous or whether he was just enjoying pretending he was famous. Um, There was no evidence in the record that he ever um, had any uh, substantial um, media exposure at all. Um, He had one artist that apparently he had made a a video clip of, and uh, it made two demo CDs over a 10 or 15 year period, uh, but that was it. There was no commercial product whatsoever.
0: The research that I did on some of this case was well, going back and looking at some previous news archives. The really interesting thing about this was Lou Pearlman, who was better known as the sixth member of NSYNC. Um, he was sentenced, I believe it was in 2007, 2008, somewhere like around there. Um, and he was pretty much running a Ponzi scheme. So it was all over the websites, entertainment tonight, all of these publicly uh, national TV shows. And Orlando is only about 30, 45 minutes away from Kissimmee. So the what he was trying to do, do you think that he was kind of using Lou Pearlman's business model? for like uh like boy bands and the girl bands? Do you think that's that, that was kind of like his goal?
2: Well, you you brought up two different things. One was a business model and the other was a Ponzi scheme. Right. Um, his Ponzi scheme, obviously, from what you've indicated, didn't show up until 2008. And um, this defendant actually had started his business much earlier. So oh, wow. uh, he, he started his business in 2003 and was soliciting women much prior to that. But wow. in terms of the, the business plan, whether he was trying to model it after, um, you know, the Backstreet Boys, Lou Perlman, that kind of thing. Um, again, I don't want to speculate as to what was in his mind, but I can tell you what he told the sentencing court. And that is that he specifically claimed that I develop artists just as Usher did for Justin Bieber. So it probably the model itself, wherever he got it from. Um, that's at least what he was trying to portray himself as.
1: So did he ever have like a legitimate business plan with physical office or staff or anything like that?
2: I think there's a difference between having a plan and executing a plan. Uh, He certainly he would tell you and he testified that he had this plan. But um, the, the long and the short of it was he didn't do what he promised consumers that he would do. He spent just enough to make it appear that he was legitimate, and that was part of how he, he got these women to invest with him. But um, as was pointed out at the trial, after 10 or 15 years and millions of dollars raised, there was no commercial product, there was no recording studio, no contracts. Um, he claimed he had sponsorships. There was no sponsorships. Those were all make-believe. Uh, as I said, he had two developmental CDs. Um, he had one YouTube video that the, that the judge even said looked like it had basically was high school quality. Uh, He had some amateurish brochures. Uh, The court said that it looked like they had been produced uh, with a home computer. So um, obviously the evidence would not support that he had a legitimate business going on.
0: So what was he actually promising the investors? And the second part of that question is what made the promise a security?
2: What he was promising investors was that if you give me your money, I will uh, create this business and uh, we will all be rich. You're getting in at the ground floor. We're going to make millions off this, just as other people have. And if one of our stars makes it, we'll all be rich. So what you have here, and, and he basically promised them either 2% or 3%, sometimes 4 sometimes higher but he was promising them a return based on, on something that other people were doing. So it, it would classify, it would qualify as a security, even though he wasn't giving them shares of stock or anything of that sort, he was essentially entering into an, what would be called an investment contract, which does constitute a security, where you have a, a group of people who are investing money in a common enterprise or common scheme where the uh, returns are to be derived from the efforts of someone else, not from your own efforts. So it is a classic uh, security, and it, and it could have been charged as such.
1: How did he get money from his investors, so to speak? I mean, were they just handing him cash? Was there? How did you find the money trail? What was the money trail like?
2: The very first victim who came in described how she had given him $28,000. And so um, there was a, a money trail, so to speak, to follow. Um, as part of our work, uh, we... Contacted investors. We um, obtained the bank records from, you know, one check, seeing where it was deposited, getting the records, seeing if there are other potential investors. Um, we were able to identify at least 20 investors in Florida um, who had invested in this. Uh, and basically, what the evidence showed was he would get them to give cash, give checks. Um, he would take proceeds from. Uh, insurance policies, he got some people to mortgage their homes, equity out of their homes. Uh, he would just take and take and take. And when they were out of cash, then he would ask them to open up lines of credit. And some of these people opened um, credit cards, bought things for them on credit. Um, it's just a relentless pursuit of other people's money.
0: So the victims are giving money in any way that they can get it but was he ever given them anything in return as far as how the company is doing, any kind of performance evaluations to let them know, like you're, mon- you're giving me your money and is growing the business you know, greatly. Were they ever given anything to let them know, like how the was being spent or what they were getting in returns or anything like that?
2: No, um, he gave them basically um, nothing in when they were investing. I mean, they didn't even have contracts to establish, you know, there was nothing written. And if anyone asked for a contract. Uh, it was uh, how dare you, you know, I, I have integrity. My word is my bond. Um, all along, he would just give them information. Oh, this is what we're doing. It's going to be next month or it's going to be next year. We're we're building a studio. We're going to be on tour. Uh, but there was no ever. There's no evidence of him providing them with updates uh, as to how the business was going in terms of financial statements or anything like that. He did provide prospective uh, investors, these women, that he would contact. He would give them brochures that would have um, just outlandish projections in terms of the millions and millions of dollars that were going to be made from this um, from this venture, and uh, the prosecutor and the judge commented that these figures were just completely pulled out of thin air. There was nothing behind them.
1: How many victims were involved and how many? How much money was lost during this?
2: We identified uh, 20 victims from Florida, and I believe the amount that was raised just from those victims was over a million dollars. Um, at Sensing, um, believe it or not, uh, he told the judge that uh, there were more than 20 victims. He told the judge that he actually had taken money from 160-plus uh, victims. He didn't call them victims, but he he, he uh, took money from at least 165 investors and over $5 million. Worth. Again, I don't know why he – I guess what he, the point he was trying to make is – I must be legitimate because all these people gave me this money, but it was um, surprising that such an admission would be made. It was surprising to me that such an admission would be made right before sentencing.
0: Well, how did he meet his potential investors?
2: He met them in a variety of ways. Um, He met them on dating sites, um, Match.com and some others, um, he met them through social media, um, basically would strike up a conversation, uh, chat or whatever, um, develop some type of rapport and try to move it forward as a relationship, and then eventually would uh, invite them out for a date, and, and then there would be an actual date. Um, but he also, on in addition to the dating sites and the media, social media, he also um, – found these women just in chance encounters. And maybe they're not chance encounters, but he seemed to have found a lot of women um, in stores. He found them um, at a casino. He found them uh, walking in a parking lot. He met one of these victims at an airport in Amsterdam. So clearly what was happening is he would pitch anybody, any woman, That he found who he felt um, was going to be receptive or or fit the type of woman that he was looking for.
0: Did he have a type? He
2: he, he did. Uh, At least the evidence indicates he did. Um, The evidence indicates he wasn't looking for some young babe, you know, uh, at the beach. He wasn't looking for, um, you know, anything like that. Um, he was looking for a certain type of woman. He was looking for a more mature and older woman, uh, maybe in her, her 40s or 50s, uh, divorced, uh, maybe widowed, someone who was lonely, uh, someone that maybe was coming out of a bad relationship or, or just needed somebody to talk to. Uh, what he was looking for, and, and the judge commented on this, that he was looking for women that he could manipulate, that were emotionally vulnerable. Uh, And it's also interesting, and this was brought up uh, by the prosecutor, that in response to the argument that this was a legitimate business, the response was, what legitimate business only seeks capital from older women? There wasn't one male investor that he solicited.
1: So did he have to work hard to gain their trust, or was he specific enough in his targeting that it was fairly easy for him to gain their trust?
2: He seemed to be a very, very gifted communicator. So maybe it's not working hard. Um, He was looking for a a certain type of woman. And when he found that woman, um, it really didn't seem like it took very long for him to get the relationship into the the next level very, very quickly. Um, Sometimes it was one date, two dates, uh, not much at all. Uh, The prosecutor specifically said, that the defendant was skilled at sizing people up. That's the way he described it. He really knew how to play or manipulate these women. And even the judge said, this is a quote from the judge, you have an uncanny uncanny ability to identify women when they are particularly vulnerable. And the judge found that to be um, disturbing and egregious.
0: Of the 20-plus women that were victims, did any of the victims – know each other, or did they ever talk to each other about things just not seeming to appear right?
2: There were some investors who ultimately were victims, but maybe along the way, didn't, didn't understand that they were being victimized. Uh, and some of them came in and, and volunteered at, at the homes that he was staying at, where he supposedly had his recording studio. And so clearly some of those people who were investors would have known of other investors because they were sending out some communications uh, over time. But I think the evidence uh, suggested that most of these investors did not know each other.
0: Going back to his background, are you aware of any criminal charges in his background?
2: Uh, The judge made reference at the sentencing to the existence of certain charges. Um, and one that was mentioned was a an offense um, while he was in the military. There was a, a conviction, a court um and he ended up serving uh, two years in confinement for that charge.
1: One of the things we know about folks who are good manipulators is that sometimes they can manipulate in other ways. They can. They're they're a uh, perpetrator of domestic violence, that type of thing. Was Campbell ever violent with any of his victims? Um, because we know he established some of those more romantic relationships.
2: There wasn't evidence presented at trial that there was any type of physical abuse, if you will. Um, but there was uh, a lot of evidence um, that um, you might characterize this as emotional abuse or, or verbal abuse, those kinds of things. Um, he he went through a period where he would be very romantic and very attentive and what have you. And once he had their money, um, and the prosecutor even described this well, um, he changed. It was almost like a Dr. Jekyll, and Mr. Hyde. Once he had their money, then he became abusive. If if they questioned him, where well, how come I don't have a return? How come I never got a, a contract? Um, he would use. Uh, very, He would become very aggressive. He would use threats, verbal abuse. Uh, there was a taped voicemail that was played at trial, and the judge just described it as disgustingly vulgar and threatening. So there was no no physical abuse that was put in the record that I'm aware of.
0: What did the victims find or the ladies that were dating What was their appeal towards him?
2: I think he... He came off as, as very confident, um, he was very knowledgeable. He appeared. Um, he seemed to know what he was doing. He seemed to have an answer for everything, um, you know, early in the relationship, you know, when they would ask about his business. Um, he was very charming. Um, he, he would woo them. Um, he paid attention to them. And um, I hope my wife isn't listening to this, but he probably did all the things that she would, would want me to do. He listened. He would send flowers. Uh, he would send texts after their date, oh, how's your day going? Uh, he really made them feel special during that part of his enticement. Um, he appealed to two very strong uh, emotional needs. Um, he would talk to them about you know, his dreams and what are your dreams? And so he would he would um, talk about things that would, would go to um, financial security, um, romance, two very powerful uh, human needs. And um, he basically then would would try to just get them to believe in his business and he would show them just enough legitimacy to make them believe to get their money.
0: So he basically worked them like it was his job because it was his job to do that.
2: And, And again, Playing on uh, vulnerable victims, very powerful emotional needs, telling them you're getting in on the ground floor. You'll never have another worry uh, financially. You you won't have to worry about a thing and and making them feel loved and cared about. And so very powerful emotions that he was he was stirring.
1: At least until he got their money.
2: And then there was a change. The prosecutor described a three step approach for him. And one was this seduction phase. Uh, where he would listen and we talk of romance and uh, he would actually meet their fam, some of their families and he'd send them flowers. And then there was a perception phase where he was trying to get them to buy in and believe the illusion that he was creating to to get them to part with their money. Uh, And that's where he would use his fake website or he would show them those bogus projections or the brochures and things like that. He would use name dropping. He would tell them about, oh, I have all these facilities, I have a professional staff, and we're gonna be training uh, these artists. They'll get voice training and um, we'll manage their careers. And once he he got their money, then came the third phase, which was the intimidation phase, basically just keeping them in line. And it is remarkable, he started in 2000 to 2003 time period, and we didn't get a complaint until 2011.
0: So a, a lot of the uh, the fraudsters that we've, up until this date on this podcast that we've kind of profiled, a lot of these fraudsters, they have family members, they have co-workers, they have people that's in the office that could have potentially have seen some red flags or they're seeing this influx of money that's coming in that wasn't there in the past. Was there any, Was there anybody that could have seen all of this money coming in, and just wondering what or was there any, was there anybody that asked questions about this?
2: If questions were asked, they were they were by individual investors about why I haven't I gotten paid that that kind of thing. Um, there were a, a couple of investors who he befriended. Um, not all of the relationships were sexual; some of them were, some of them were not but um, there were some that developed friendships with him and some of them were volunteering at the homes where he supposedly was having this recording studio. And so um, were they in a position to know more than others? You know, it's speculation, um, but you know, in some of these cases where you've got a, a, a victim, an investor, <clears throat> um, sometimes they don't wanna know. They're, they. Um, you know, knew or were they deliberately ignorant in not knowing? Um, sometimes it's it's a little of both.
1: So did you have any of the victims who actually started asking questions? I mean, a lot of them don't want to, but did you have any who did?
2: There were. There, there were several who asked, why can't I get a contract or why, you know, what's taking so long? And he had one excuse after another. And ultimately, uh, if he needed to, to control them, there would be um, you know, abusive language, there would be threats, there would be uh, intimidation, you know, how dare you, you know, I, I, do you know who I am? I, you know, I, um, so um, people did uh, apparently ask questions, but again, you're talking about a very vulnerable group of people. And so they would were only willing to go so far.
0: So in all from your investigation, a two-part question: How much money do you estimate that he actually was able to take from the victims, and what in the world was he doing with the money if he wasn't really putting it back into the recording business?
2: Um, can I? I'm ha- happy to answer that question. Can I go back to um, one other point on you asked? You asked about um, if employees were in a position to know, and if any did know, uh, there was at least one. Associate of his, who after he was convicted, um, sent letter at his direction, sent letters to all the um, consumers, all the victims, basically sending them more promotional, the old promotional materials, getting them to think, hey, there's a chance if he doesn't go to jail, there's a chance that all this can can be made right and we can all get our money back. And so this individual, obviously. was in a position to, to potentially know that that was not true, but um, c- certainly helping him, uh, you know, you asked about whether people helping him, he, he, that's one example. Another example is um, there was an associate who came to the jail and would have conversations with him, and one of those conversations was taped. Actually, many of them was taped, but one of those conversations was actually played at his sentencing, and he basically Uh, instructed this woman to concoct a fake letter that would go to all of the consumers, the investors, and potentially go to the judge as well, uh, talk about what a great guy he was and how this supposed investor, this anonymous investor, uh, didn't uh, feel that he had done anything wrong and didn't want him to go to jail because everyone would lose if he went to jail. And so he essentially was asking her to concoct this letter and on the tape, you hear him saying, um, be careful when you make this, You know, use gloves, don't get your fingerprints on this, this letter you're gonna send, don't send it uh, from the Orlando area, uh, go, go down to Fort Lauderdale or Miami so it won't look like it came from around here. And uh, so you had some people on his inner circle uh, who were actively assisting him. And again, whether they knew it was wrong or whether, um, They just believed him, you know, or they were desperate, hoping to get a return. That's only speculation, but all I can tell you is that's what they did.
1: What was his end game, aside from bringing in money?
2: I don't know what his end game was, if he had one. Um, He clearly was using other people's money, and he told the the judge that um, all he needed was a little more time and a little more money, and this would all work out. So maybe he didn't have an endgame maybe he thought he could continue collecting money from consumers and, and investors uh, and and live uh, a ripe old married life on other people's money I don't know uh, be sheer speculation
0: So well so his end game wasn't question but do you have a feeling of what his motivation for executing this scheme was? Was it because he could have potentially been, way behind on bills, or he didn't have a skill that he could put into the real world to have a trade to make a living for himself? Or did he just look at this as just a way, an easy way to make a buck in a quick way?
2: Um, again, I I don't know what's in his mind. But I mean, I can tell you what the prosecutor, the theme of the prosecutor's case was that he simply didn't, didn't want to work. He wanted to do what he wanted to do on other people's money he's gifted. I mean, he's a great, apparently, and a great communicator and probably had a lot of potential to do a lot of other things, um, but chose to do do this because it was a lifestyle that he wanted to lead.
0: What was he using the money for?
2: We found evidence that he had collected more than a million dollars from 20 investors, and and I believe I told you that Uh, he testified at at sentencing. It was much, much more than that and much longer than we we knew of. He claimed he was doing it for 15 years and raised $5 million from over 160 investors. But the money that we saw coming into the accounts that we were able to to trace showed it was at least a million dollars from 20 Floridians. Um, And basically, the money was used uh, to support his lifestyle, whether it was housing, paying the mortgage on where he was living, Putting improvements in the house where he was living. It wasn't even a house he owned, but he was using other people's monies to make it more comfortable for himself. Uh, food, entertainment, uh, and then gambling. He spent hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars gambling at uh, Hard Rock, uh, Seminole Hard Rock in Tampa, um, vague, numerous trips to Vegas, every casino you could think of. There was evidence of him uh, taking monies out, ATM transactions. Uh, Caesars, uh, Bellagio, everything you could have, Golden Nugget, just to name a few. Um, casinos in Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, casinos in Atlantic City. Uh, he was gambling everywhere. And it's interesting, the defense tried to claim during the trial that, <clears throat> you know, you can go to Vegas for a lot of different reasons, and it doesn't have to just be va- be gambling. He could have been buying recording uh, equipment because it's cheaper out there, what have you. So they made that argument at trial and and the jury obviously didn't believe it. But by the time sentencing came, the subpoenas that the the prosecution had issued to these casinos, the production came in. They didn't have that evidence at trial, but at sentencing they were able to to definitively tell a judge that they were able to trace from the production from Hard Rock uh, Tampa, five nearly five hundred thousand dollars of gambling that he did in two and a half years
0: with a guy like this big high roller you'd mentioned this house previously i'm just um curious are you aware of like what kind of automobiles or what kind of house was he renting did it match his spending habits at all
2: okay so here's the thing he um he didn't have a lot that was in his name uh people would he would get investors to buy him stuff. So they bought him a boat, they bought him cars. Um, He told them he needed clothes, they would buy him clothes. Uh, He said they wanted, um, he needed an RV to be able to do these national tours and so they kicked in money to buy him an RV. Um, He ultimately lived, he lived at a girlfriend's home initially for, for a period of almost 10 years and that was supposedly where his first studio was, which he called the Vault. And he used consumers' money to put on an addition um, at that home, about a 300 square foot uh, addition, which he claimed was his his music studio. Now he told the court he spent 2.5 million building this 300 foot addition, which the court obviously found was incredible. Um, square footage on that. So um, he, he was living for free, but he would use consumers' monies to help pay this lady's mortgage. And ultimately, when that relationship broke up in about 2008, uh, she got a, a restraining order injunction against him, and um, he was forced to leave. Again, he didn't have a real office. All of his what he claimed to have was at somebody else's property. And when he got thrown out, the court, Permitted him to come back and get whatever equipment he supposedly had, and he came back for nothing. Uh, but then told consumers, investors, this is why you're not getting a return, is because my studio, this great thing that I built, I've lost it now. It's that that terrible um, Mrs. So and so who threw out all of our tapes, our master tapes, and all this great stuff. So, um, that's one of the places he lived. And he also put an in-ground pool um, there just so he'd be, so he claimed so that they could take pictures of, you know, when, when stars would come and record, they would want a place to hang out and, you know, kind of veg and, and you know, um, get ready for the next session. So he had to have an in-ground pool where he was living. But when he left there, he hooked up with another um, woman that he befriended and her daughter And she allowed him to live there. He he lived for a period in his RV on her property, um, on the consumer's RV, the one they bought him. And um, that's where he then put his next, quote, recording studio. And this one he called the game room. And what happened was he actually, um, the evidence of trial was they pulled the permits and sure enough, what he was building was not the game room, but he was building a game room. And so um, when you look at the permits and the plans, he had the plans where a pool table would be and where his a bar area would be and where arcade games would be placed and in the upstairs would be a storage area. There was no mention of any recording studio. Um, the property, again, was not his. The property was not zoned for any kind of commercial activity. Uh, And again, the permit said it was for a game room and storage.
1: So this guy obviously is a master manipulator. I mean, he's he's pulled the wool over all these people's eyes, but it almost sounds like he's also sort of believing his own fantasy world and that, you know, he is he is the master recorder and he deserves to have all this money. Was he shocked when he was being investigated?
2: Uh, I was not a, a member of this office at that time, and um, I don't know that if any notes were made about his, his impression. Um, he, he claimed at sentencing that uh, he became aware of our investigation and that he quote wanted to cooperate, that he asked his attorney to, to cooperate or, or at least contact us. Um, and that's not uncommon in a lot of frauds uh, when the fraudster finds out that there's investigation, they usually will lawyer up and, and send their attorney over to try to get information, fishing about what's going on in the investigation and, and perhaps delay things. So that's not uncommon. I don't know that that's what his motive was, uh, but he claimed at sensing that he truly, uh, he wanted to cooperate and he could have explained everything if we'd only given him a chance.
0: So did your office did it handle uh, the investigation from the beginning all the way until sentencing?
2: We did. Um, We were the first agency that got a complaint on this. Um, Like I said, we subpoenaed all the bank records. We tracked down those funds. We did an extensive uh, financial analysis. We contacted the the 20 Floridian uh, investors. We obtained statements from them. Uh, We provided our analysis to the prosecutors. We also prepared an extensive probable cause affidavit. It was like a 30-page, single-space document that laid out all the evidence and all the uh, statements that we had obtained. And then, uh, obviously, we support the prosecution throughout trial and sentencing.
1: So during this whole process, were there any hurdles or hiccups during the case? And if so, what were they?
2: Um, I'm not aware of any hurdles or hiccups in connection with the investigation. Uh, the prosecutor um, mentioned uh, during the trial and at sentencing that that some of the victims, quite frankly, didn't want to come forward. Um, you know, they either wanted to kind of turn the corner and, and move away for whatever reasons, emotional reasons or otherwise. As the prosecutor indicated some felt still felt threatened. And were fearful and didn't want to um, cooperate. So at trial, there was some hurdles to overcome because they had uh, the information. I think named fourteen specific consumers, and at trial, I think they had to withdraw six of them uh, from the um, from the charges.
1: One of the things uh, when we do our outreach is when we're talking to folks, what we hear repeatedly is I'm ashamed to admit that I was a victim, I'm ashamed, I'm afraid somebody's gonna think that I'm incompetent. Um, and we tell people, don't don't be afraid, don't be ashamed, get angry, get even, turn these people in. Was this something that you faced with a lot of the, the victims? I mean, when you say they didn't want to be a part of it, was that shame part of it?
2: Again, I can only um, go by what the prosecutor um, described, and uh, he basically indicated that that there was um, emotional uh, issues um, for these women. They, they were devastated financially and emotionally, and so uh, that's probably part of it, but I would be speculating.
0: And did he testify during trial, and if so, or if he didn't? How do you feel that worked out for him?
2: He did not testify at trial, um, which is his right to do. And obviously the prosecutor can't make any comments about that. Um, and uh, interestingly, now, after the fact, after the trial has been done and the sentences have been done, uh, he has filed motions for a new sentence based on ineffective assistance to counsel because he claims his attorney wouldn't let him testify or, or, or
0: Talked him into not testifying. Um, This just is just another example of how dynamic this guy was. So you have some victims that were afraid to come to trial, some victims that were afraid to speak up. But again, in some of my research that I was able to obtain is that you also had the flip side of that. You had some victims that was testifying on his behalf during the sentencing saying that he truly was a good guy and that if he would have just been given just, just a little bit more time, that he would have been able to make good from all of his promises. Uh, now that that has all been said and done and we know what truly happened, do you think do they still feel that way?
2: Well, let me just say um, you're right that um, several Uh, of these victims did actually testify at his trial and the prosecutor had to address that. And basically the prosecutor said, look, these are are not bad people. These are people who either out of a sense of loyalty or friendship or maybe out of desperation uh, and hope that they're going to get their money back, that they're supporting him. And a lot of these people came back at sentencing and basically that was the same appeal to the judge is, you know, if you send him away, we'll never get our money back. Um, We hear that a lot in fraud cases. Um, The government is usually the bad guy. You know, we would have, everyone would have got their money back if the government hadn't stepped in and and shut down that Ponzi scheme. I don't know what they feel, whether they feel now that that they were wronged by him or whether they feel that the government stepped in too soon. Um, I have no way of knowing that. I mean, I've seen it both ways um, in different cases.
1: In in the trial and what you've seen about the trial, did he show any remorse or did he maintain his innocence?
2: He maintained his innocence throughout the trial. Even though he didn't testify, he did put on a defense. So Um, He had witnesses. He he cross-examined all of the um, government's witnesses. So he did put on a defense, and he did maintain his innocence. Um, At sentencing, um, he basically told the court, he he told um, everyone repeatedly, he said, um, I'm sorry for upsetting certain investors, and he named certain investors that he was sorry for having one, he said he pissed off so-and-so and he was sorry that he he um, upset some of these people and he asked for their forgiveness and he repeatedly said, I'm accountable for all the money. I will pay everyone back, even the ones who were acquitted. I will be uh, their servant. Um, judge, just let me out. Just let me keep working for them. Um, he, I made mistakes, but I'm, I'm accountable for all the money. Um, I had no intent to... to Steal anything. I'm accountable for all the money. Just let me out, Judge. Uh, I'm not a con man. I'm accountable for all the money. Just just let me out, Judge. Um, he told the judge he just needed more time and that uh, he told the judge, in just five months, I'm going to be having my grand opening. So you can't throw me in jail. I'm going to have a grand opening over the 4th of July weekend. Uh, I, I'm accountable for all the money. Uh, he told him, I'll have them all paid back under four years, just give me four more years. And then he told the judge, all I need to do is raise some more money.
0: What was the outcome of the trial? What was his sentencing?
2: He came in, obviously asking for probation and, and asking that the court, let him continue to work for his dream and to, um, you know, repay all these victims. Uh, the judge sentenced him to 20 years with the department of corrections. And 10 years of supervised probation after that. So he got a total sentence of 30 years. Um, he was ordered to pay restitution. He was ordered that while on restitution, while on probation, uh, he's not to uh, use the internet. He's not to be in any chat rooms. He's not to visit any dating sites. Um, he was told that once he gets off probation, he has to have gainful employment and he can't contact the victims. And while he's on probation, he can't solicit money for any recording or entertainment business.
1: We understand from what we've seen about the the court hearing that he continued to be this master manipulator showman um, and actually told the judge he thought he would be a good business partner if they could have met under different circumstances and might have actually propositioned his own attorney.
2: He he did um, at the sentencing hearing. He was given an opportunity to stand up and tell the judge anything he wanted to tell him, and that was when he told him that the scheme was bigger than we had originally charged and originally thought, and that he must be honest because all these people give him money, and that he pitched, he admitted he pitched his own attorney, and he said, Judge, if if uh, I met you outside under different circumstances, uh, I would I would tell you about my business, and I would tell you about all the money that you you, you would make with me.
0: Was was he ordered to pay back any restitution, or was any funds, or property, or anything able to be recovered to kind of give back to the victims?
2: I don't think there was any um, significant uh, assets that were recovered. I I don't believe that to be the case. Um, He was ordered uh, to pay restitution to the people who were named as victims. Any information uh, the state had been asking for a figure of about nine hundred eighty thousand, relating again to the victims that we knew of. Um, And I'm not exactly sure there was to be another sentencing hearing to actually go over those numbers because some of the victims had been um, eliminated during the trial. So he was ordered restitution. I don't have that figure for you. Um, There was no fine imposed because the judge felt that he would not have an ability to pay that fine. And if he had any ability, the judge wanted it to go to restitution.
0: With all the, the victims that he had, did he have like a number one that was kind of like uh, a main partner that he had that could have possibly have been like a legitimate relationship that was also a victim? Like he was dating all of these women, but I was just kind of curious if he had like a main girlfriend or were they all just looked at the same?
2: I don't know how he looked at them. I can tell you that um, the woman that he met very early on in um, 2000 or 2001 when he came down to Florida and he ended up living with her. It seems as though he lived with her from uh, when he got to Florida in early 2000 until that restraining order in about 2008. So that's the only evidence that I'm aware of in terms of a a real long relationship. All, All these people... Um, many. I want to say many of these people still consider him to be friends, even though they might not be um, intimate or, or personal, uh, close friends. They still considered him to be friends, and and seemed loyal. A lot of them.
1: So I want to go back to the restitution real quick. Um, what happened to the RV? Because those are expensive. Those are you know three hundred thousand dollars. Was that something that was recovered and was able to be sold to give back to to clients, or was that something that was in somebody
2: else's name. Um, I believe it was in somebody else's name. I would have to, honestly, I have to get back to you on that. Most of everything that was purchased, he he purchased in other people's names. And I believe that's the case with that RV. Um, he was in many ways kind of a, a financial ghost, and which is typical in some of these schemes. Um, had he not had a bank account and been accepting checks that we were able to trace, it would have been a much more difficult case.
0: And what kind of impact do you believe that this left for the victims to kind of pick up? Because he wasn't just taking a little bit of money from the victims. He was pretty much taking everything that they had. So are you aware of the kind of devastation it could have left for some of these victims to kind of have to pick up?
2: Yes. I mean, I'm I'm aware through... Um, the sentencing hearing and what transpired at the sentencing hearing. Um, the, the prosecutors, again, didn't call these people. They relied on the testimony that, that these victims had given a trial because some of it was too painful to put them through again at a sentencing hearing. Um, he described the devastating financial and emotional uh, devastation that these consumers had, had undergone, the lifestyle changes, bankruptcies. Um, affecting their retirement, some affecting your health. Um, The judge made some pretty specific comments about that and he said specifically he said you got most of these women to give you money you knew they couldn't afford to give you. One woman was forced into bankruptcy, women lost their retirement, women lost equity in their homes, one needed a medical procedure and then couldn't afford it. The judge went on to say you were relentless and taking money from these women. The court finds that very, very disturbing and very, very egregious. And the court finds no excuse whatsoever for your preying upon these vulnerable victims in this case. And then he sentenced them to 20 years.
1: So what are some of the warning signs that um, consumers could have been watching out for, in particular, these women could have been watching for so they might not have been victimized if they're ever facing something like this?
2: Well, I think um, it's always good to be on your guard at any time, but um, when you get somebody who's maybe a little too friendly and then uh, begins asking uh, essentially predatory questions on, on the very first date or on a very early in a relationship, uh, start asking about, you know, your financial information and, and your financial condition, uh, I mean, it appeared in this case the defendant would essentially start interrogating these women very, very quickly, finding out about Oh, you're a widow. Do you have insurance? Oh, how's your 401k? Oh, do you have any equity in your home? So when you start getting those types of predatory questions very early on, that's clearly a a red flag. Um, The fact that somebody is is pushing a relationship too fast, really, um, just in an unnatural way, is, is, I think, a a red flag. Um, Asking for money very early on in a relationship, um, uh, I, I think that's... Clearly, a red flag. Uh, the fact that this guy was taking tens of thousands, if not in some cases over a hundred thousand dollars, from some of these victims, and there's not one piece of paper that evidences that, other than their check or their credit card receipt. Um, he, the fact that he wasn't giving contracts. That he was just, oh, my word is everything. Um, he, the fact that he told people, oh, I can't keep things in my own name. Uh, you know, I might get sued. You know how temperamental these recording stars are. Just things that that don't add up, Uh, all the delays and all the excuses, those are all things that are are red flags.
0: When someone finds himself in a dating situation like this, a lot of times they keep it to themselves. But eventually, if it's a long-term relationship, people start finding out about it. And when family members or close friends find out, they see the red flags everywhere whether you're a friend or a family member, or even the person that's going through this romance scam, what are the tips that you would suggest for them to either avoid or get out of a relationship like this?
2: Well, again, I mean, I went through some of them in terms of red flags. That that, that would be one tip is, is yep. looking for all of those red flags and, and go slow. Um, don't just rush into a relationship. And, and the other thing is there's, I hate to say this, but there's a lot of tools out there, a lot of ability to research people online. And you could do simple searches and find out a lot of information about somebody. And, you know, before you're going to start giving them tens of thousands or a hundred thousand uh, dollars, you could you could do some simple research. Um, and there's sites that you can get background history and stuff like that. Um, if, if the relationship, again, it, it's kind of like the investment um warning that you always hear. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Well, if the relationship, this guy or this woman seems too perfect, um, you know, maybe you should think about that and and, and be cautious. Um, again, if, if they're asking for money very early on a relationship, I mean, that's something that is, is a clear warning sign. And, and at that point, you probably should be talking to trusted friends and, and relatives. I mean, that's really a, a good tip that you suggested. Um, talk to somebody who has an objective view of the situation. Gotcha.
1: So you mentioned background history um, and that people should be looking at these kinds of things. Um, And you you mentioned earlier that he had a a criminal record previously. Do we know if he had done this type of activity before? Would this be something that would have shown up in a a basic criminal background check for those of us who might, you know, date someday and do that type of thing? (laughs)
2: um when you say had he done this before you are you talking about had he been charged with this specific crime because no the answer would have been no uh they would have found out that um potentially uh as the court indicated that there was a, a very serious charge outstanding against him um i don't know that um it involved the same fact pattern that we have here though. I think the, the circumstances of that conviction, uh, it was a military conviction, uh, were, were different.
1: But no financial crimes at that point?
2: None that, that um, I'm aware of um, in the public record.
0: So with this case, uh, this would be classified, I guess, as a security fraud case, but it's also really a romance uh, scam. How do you feel that this is different from your typical romance scams or the younger generation calls catfishing because the MTV actually has a very, very popular show about catfishing? And it also seems like Dr. Phil has one episode a week of people from every generation from being 20 years old, all the way up to about 80 or 90 years old, people are being catfish, falling victims to romance But in this particular case, how do you feel that this from what you've typically seen in your office?
2: Okay, so uh, first, I got to say, I'm, I'm familiar with catfish or whatever it is. Um, yeah. It's not my generation. Um, <clears throat> I think this case has a lot of similarities to a typical romance scam um, online that you see, um, but it has some differences as well. Um, Certainly here he was targeting women, which happens in in many times in these romance scams online. Uh, He certainly was trying to establish a a relationship with them as quickly as possible, which they do on on online uh, situations, trying to gain their trust uh, in the online situation many times uh, the the scammer will try to take them off that dating site and get to just have some personal private chats where they can then really start to develop uh, the emotional manipulation that goes on uh, We didn't have that here but he did very quickly I invite them out to to dates when, and that's when uh, that part of it could take place um, these these uh, typical, scams online, you have somebody who is a master manipulator, and We certainly have that here. Um, you have situations where they're asking inappropriate questions very quickly because they don't have a lot of time. It's it's a volume game for them. You know, if you're not, if I can't make inroads with you, boom, I'm moving on to the next potential victim. And so, he did that as well in terms of he was targeting certain types of women, and if it was not that, or it wasn't going anywhere, he was going somewhere else quickly. Um, but again, asking inappropriate questions very early in the relationship, that's very common. It was common here and it's common online scams. Uh, and then the the promises and excuses that are made uh, in these online scams many times, they'll they'll tell the victim they need money for X, Y, Z. or Maybe I need money to come home. I wanna see you, I wanna meet you, but they never do. It's They're just after the The money and as soon as they got the money, they're gone. And so, um, although there's similarities with what was done in this case, there are differences as well. Um, For example, he actually was meeting these people. Mm -hmm. In the online situation, as I said, they don't typically do that. Um, In the online situation, many times it's a one and done and they're gone. Um, He was not. He was relentless. It was one and one and one and one and one and one until it was no more ones. Um, and then it was, well, give me credit, give me this, give me that, buy something else for me. So um, that is a little different than the typical online uh, dating scam, romance scam that you see, it lasted much longer and the contact was much more intimate. Um, The other difference that's kind of notable is in the um, online schemes, oftentimes they'll ask that the victim send them funds in a way that is, is totally untraceable, whether it's gift cards or something like that, some kind of uh, wire, uh, Western Union or something of that sort. Um, here, he was oftentimes getting checks that he would deposit right in his own bank account. So, uh, it's very similar to scams that we've seen um, with a little wrinkle. And I, I think he just enjoyed, um, he enjoyed that aspect, too, of having that, that um, power of these women for uh, a longer period of time. Gotcha.
0: Well, is there anything that we have left out today about this case that you feel that the listeners need to know about?
2: No, I think you've covered it pretty well. I mean, it's, it's just, again, a situation where um, you need to be diligent and, and obviously use common sense, um, you know, look for those warning signs. Um, you know, don't be isolated. Don't allow somebody to isolate you. Um, Talk to your trusted friends and, and your advisors and um, family members, look for those red flags. And if it, if it um, seems suspicious, report it. I mean, a lot of our cases come from tips.
0: So how can someone check the background of the person making the investment offer? First, go to nasa.org. that dot N-A-S-A-A.org. Click Contact Us and then click Contact NASA Member to choose your jurisdiction's regulator. Being an informed investor means having a plan and understanding each of your investments. Whether you're new to investing or or you're already investing, NASA and its members provide a variety of online investor education resources for investors of all ages. Go to nasa.org for more information on how to be wise and safe investor. Well, thank you both for joining us and for the work that you do to protect the investors. And that is it from today. And from Montgomery, Alabama, I'm Nick Bondarou.
1: And from Olympia, Washington, I'm Lynn Peters. If you have any questions about today's episode or would like more information about the topics discussed, you can email us at realliferegulators at gmail.com. And if you'd like to hear future episodes, please hit the subscribe button.